Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Censored, a podcast for shameless, filthy-minded feckers. I'm Aoife Vrithnach, a historian who prefers reading novels to history books. What can I say? They're usually much better written. I'm on Twitter, at CensoredPod, and I'd love it if you could leave a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. This episode features a giant of Irish and world literature, Samuel Beckett. The Irish censors banned three of his books, and I'm examining the first one to fall victim to the eagle-eyed smutseekers. More Pricks Than Kicks was published in 1934 and was banned that year, but it was one of the few books that were later unbanned following an appeals process. After the censorship legislation was changed in 1947, bans could be overturned by an appeals board. Beckett's More Pricks was released from censorship jail in 1952, finally free to corrupt the morals of the Irish nation. I was a little intimidated at the thought of reading Beckett at first. He's such a big literary beast. But I actually really enjoyed this book. I'm reading More Pricks alongside a later Beckett work, First Love, on the recommendation of my guest, Dr Lloyd Maeve Houston from the University of Oxford. They recently completed their doctorate on Irish modernism and the politics of sexual health at Hartford College. Their research explores filth in all its forms, examining the ways in which key events in Irish cultural and political history intersected with wider debates over venereal disease, birth control and eugenics. They've also written extensively about the history of obscenity with their work forming the basis for a particularly lewd exhibition in the Bodleian Library in 2018. This exhibition got write-ups in The Guardian, The Times Literary Supplement, and, to their eternal shame, The Daily Mail. Honestly, I couldn't ask for a more appropriate guest. Hi, Lloyd. Hiya. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. And uh, yeah, no, it was a, it was a, an emotionally complicated moment when I saw that, they, uh, that the mail had picked that up. I was like, oh, this is uh, an interesting line to have in your CV. I'm both a pride and ashamed at, uh, at roughly the same time. <laughs> so I was just thinking about the drink to go with with this particular episode. And I was thinking if you wanted to raise a glass inspired by more pricks, the tastiest sounding drink in the book is a Gloria. And no, I didn't mean the 80s song, but a coffee laced with brandy. 
Ruby, one of the women who strides across the pages, drinks it on the loo to avoid talking to her mother. The central male character, Balacqua, drinks porter, but it's often disappointingly flat and stale, and it just sounds absolutely vile. Did I miss anything, Lloyd? Were they the main drinks in the book? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I think the glo- you're right that the Gloria is definitely the most appealing thing. Um, in the, in the same story where um, Ruby um, hides in the in the loo from her from her ma, um, Blackwa shows up with uh, a bottle of fifteen uh, year old Jameson's that he's bought on tick um, as part of their their suicide pact um, that that goes awry. Um, so I think that might be the complimentary um, thing to consume. Oh, that's true. They did actually drink most of it in the end, didn't they? Yeah, it's uh, the, um, I think to the point where they can't fire the pit or well, where the pistol goes off unexpectedly. So, um... <laughs> but I think the Gloria sounded. I mean, I'd never heard of um, coffee laced with brandy called a Gloria before, which it just sounds fantastic. What what else would you want to order? But I had to work kind of hard to find the Banimal content actually in this book. Like compared to the pulp novels, which are usually page one, I just didn't think it was really rude, and I had to focus really, really hard. And I thought it was chapter four before I got to any rude bits. And this is the rude bit I thought. Now, you can tell me whether I'm, you know, making it up or not. Balakwa meets a man called Chaz on the street who says to him, But shortly I thrust, cried Chaz, Casa Fricka, decollied knight. No. Now, I thought he was talking about a brothel. But I don't know. It was really hard to read looking, looking for rude bits like this. It's just not that sort of text. It's slippery and sly and too funny, actually, to pick out a rude bit. So, like, was I right? Was that the first explicit? I know. I mean, you're, you're you're right in saying that it's hard to sort of pin down precisely what it was that um, seems to have precipitated the banning of it. But the nearest I can reckon or the nearest anyone seems to have any sense in Beckett's studies of what brought this about was probably just the title. I think just on its face, more pricks than kicks just sounds sufficiently, sufficiently rude. It's, you know, it's a uh, it's an inversion of um, what the Lord says to Saul on the road to Damascus, where he says, you know, um, it's hard for thee to kick against the pricks, um, you know, basically saying like, would you would you give over and, you know, just form part of this divine plan I've got for you? Um, and so Beckett is, you know, giving us a version of uh, of Dublin and, a, or, and you know, in Blackwell, a sort of version of a, a, a protagonist who, who isn't kicking very hard and who just really wants to be left alone. <laughs> but uh, it also gives us a Dublin that's more full of pricks than kicks. But uh, no, I mean, as you say, I think um, a, a wet night, that, that fourth um, story, is certainly the most kind of exuberantly and elaborately kind of filthy or, or smutty and kind of plays with smut. But as you were saying, it does so in a way that we're, we're half of the fun, um, if, if fun it be, is um, is in kind of digging out the smut so as as you say you know this isn't it, it's not kind of straightforwardly bawdy in the way that maybe a, a a more kind of pulpy text is instead it's a, it's a very kind of learned species of um of filth but in terms of yeah digging out the kind of filth of this um part of it is things like naming so um Frika, um the the name of the kind of hostess um or the the daughter of the hostess um comes from the term fricatrice um which is a term used to describe um, uh, a, a sex worker or lewd woman or woman who uh, has sex with other women um, and, and you can kind of see in the way that um, the Frika is first described um, Beckett is again in quite a kind of deliberately abstruse learned way is trying to give us a, a, a vision of her as a kind of 
ambiguously gendered and kind of ambiguously sexual um, figure. So um, we're, our introduction to the character goes as follows. Behold the Frika, she visits talent in the service flats. In she lands, singing Havelock Ellis in a deep voice, frankly itching to work that which is not seemly. Open upon her concave breast, as on a lectern lies um, Portigliotti's Penombre um, Clostrali, bound in Todd coal. In her talons, earnestly, she grasps Sad's Hundred Days and the anti-erotica of Alioshe G. Brunyol Sal, unopened, bound in chagrined coal. Now... I can. I, I promise you that is actually very dirty. It's just not in the way that. Yeah, it's 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 a it's a it's high grade smut. So um, as I say, we've got fricatrice, which is a kind of like 17th century term. It's used by Ben Johnson and Volpone. Um, is is the first sort of recorded use in OED. But as I say, it's um, you know uh, t- tends to be used to describe a sexually active um, woman and one who potentially engages in sex with other women. Um, that resonates with the reference to Havelock Ellis. So I'm not sure if you've covered Ellis in his work, but... Um, not yet, no. But Havelock Ellis was um, what we call a sexologist, um, sort of a, a psychological explorer of sex and sexuality. So his studies in the psychology of sex was banned in Ireland in 1931, um, among many things that he catalogues in it. it it's, it's most famous for looking at um, the phenomenon of what was then termed sexual inversion, which is what we would now understand as a kind of blend of um, transgender experience and a blend of um, same-sex desire. Um, so whenever we're told that she comes in singing Havelock Ellis in deep voice, that kind of masculine dimension maybe is meant to suggest something about her. That, frankly, itching to work that which is not seemly um, doesn't need much of a gloss, does it? <laughs> I mean, that I was like, yeah, I can feasibly see yeah, that that, that might that be a bit like naughty. like a yes. handjob in the offing or some um, kind of onanism. The concave breast, again, seems to suggest, um, you know, kind of inter- almost intersex characteristics, right? Her breast goes in rather than out. So at best, she's being called flat-chested there. Beckett just sounds like there's, there's just filth plenty. Sometimes it, it is just filth for filth's sake. I mean, Beckett loves a, a shit pun, um, both... In, in every sense of the word shit, and I think we'll we'll have feces to talk about later and on. I think it's partly a Joycean kind of inheritance, right? So, and you really see it in more pricks than kicks. It's it's a style that Beckett learns to kind of like weans himself off of um, as as his career progresses, and you know, kind of part of him finding his the the later voice that we maybe more closely associate with Beckett is is a process of um, sort of disentangling himself from Joyce, but that. There's stories of how Beckett used to write with, you know, kind of multiple uh, multilingual dictionaries and ter- like medical reference texts open in front of him. And you can kind of see that like accretive process where everything gets kind of worked in and, and overwritten and overwritten to the point where there's sort of multiple references going on in each sentence. Now, in terms of the kind of filth dimensions of this, I guess the utility of that or the strategy behind that, I think, is partly one of trying to kind of screw with the sensor in, in in part right it's you know it's, it's it's a kind of game where you're discussing these acts desires forms of embodiment that um you know the the, the irish sensor would be deeply uncomfortable with or would not wish to to have kind of circulating and broadcast but you do so in a register that's so learned that it becomes inaccessible to either them or to the kind of implied plain reader in a way that you know is is kind of pretty transparently elitist and you know is is, is unsavory in its own ways, but um, is f- enjoyable. It's an exuberant performance. Yeah, I think that 
that was what I found about Beckett was that it is it is a performance, you know, it's it's very excessive and and at the same time I had I had the feeling that there was loads of stuff that I had no idea what was going on. You know, that there was a, so many subtexts that I was like, I have no idea. Also because the way that, you know, allu- like illusions and jokes work is that you're like, really, is it possible that that's what he meant? Or is that just my version of what he meant? It's like picking up Mercury with a fork in a way to read it the way that the censor would want to read it, which is a tick box exercise with, you know, highlighted passages that we object to, which they did do. That's what's fascinating about trying to read it like a censor is it's impossible. I felt like in Egypt, <laughs> frankly. Yeah, no, no, there's a there's a um, a moment in um, Murphy, which is the, the novel Beckett writes a couple of years after More Bricks and Kicks, um, where he talks about, uh, it, it, in order to kind of describe a, a very thin, a deliberately thinly veiled sex scene between the protagonist and um, the, the, the main um, sort of female character in the novel, um, he uses this elaborate recurring trope of um, discussing it in musical terms. Um, and then he says, this phrase is chosen with care so that the um, filthy censor may not lack a chance to practice his filthy synecdoche, um, which, you know, is, is taking apart for a whole. Um, and so Beckett's very, you know, uh, as with many um, particularly modernist authors or, you know, authors from this period who um, are, are infuriated by censorship. One of the things he objects to in it is the tendency to kind of miss the wood for the trees right so you're because you're so fixated on you know the the fact that sex is alluded to that you know or that there are these notional moments of indecency that you kind of miss the um or, or refuse to recognize that that might be deployed in service of some broader intellectual aim or artistic aim um and that's a frustration that he inherits from from joyce who has all of these wranglings with you know the the, the um uh, banning of ulysses in the united states um and beckett articulates very similar frustrations when he's kind of confronted with censorship in Ireland. Like, ostensibly, it does seem like it's just about a dude wandering around town or wandering out of town. And, like, if you were to describe the story, it's it, it means nothing. It's nothing rude, really. And I did think, actually, that, you know, I was a bit torn when I read Casa Fricka first. I thought it was like a literary salon, actually. that's I was like, <laughs> maybe that's not. But then he keeps saying strumpet and... Yeah, I mean that. Yeah, you, you, you've. I think you've touched on something important about the the collection and and about the sort of the, the the kind of writing to which it belongs more broadly, which is that modernism, you know, more even than the most forms of writing, is often less concerned with what we might construe as content or you know event or plot, and is much more concerned with the mode of presentation and the the way that the language through which we describe things um, and the, the you know the kind of conceptual implications of that uh linguistic use is much more of interest the act of perceiving what's happening is much more interesting often than what's being perceived more pricks is uh, you know kind of pushes this to the extreme in that as you say um you know the, the stories are often kind of lacking in incident i mean about the most interesting thing that happens in a wet night is that Blackwa chunders all over the boots of a, a a guard um and has to wipe them clean and then um gets taken home by by the alba whose dress we are told buttons at the back which is terribly exciting um, but um i mean it's also it's partly a product of the fact that it's a very weirdly constructed book so it, it kind of came together not even particularly by design um so beckett had been trying to write a novel um, or had well been trying to had written a novel and was trying to get it um, published called dream affair to middling women 
which had been sort of hawking around um, in in 1932-33 to no avail. And when it became clear that he wasn't going to be able to publish that, he started putting together the short story collection, some of which was stories he wrote de novo, some of which, um, including A Wet Night, were kind of culled from the longer novel. So it, it, it leads to a kind of sometimes directionless collection of stories that are often about directionless characters. I mean, Blackwa, again, coming back to the kind of willfully learned uh, side of this, Blackwa Shua is a name that combines um, a figure from Dante's Purgatorio. So um, Dante meets the, fig- the figure of Blackwa, who's a, a lute maker from um, who's uh, sitting in the shade of a rock in the fetal position. Or, well, Dante asks him why he doesn't kind of try and get into heaven or like progress on. And he's just like, there's nothing better to do than sit. <laughs> so Blackwood just wants to be left the hell alone. <laughs> and, you know, this kind of elevates that to like a moral position. And the character Blackwood <laughs> yeah. spends most of more pricks and kicks just desperately trying to avoid other people in Dublin. And then Shua is the name of the mother of Onan. So basically, Beckett is coding us to read Blackwood as a lazy wanker. <laughs> <laughs> Well, which, which he yeah, essentially is. I mean, that fits. Um, <laughs> yeah, as as I say, it doesn't necessarily always make for the most kind of narratively satisfying collection of stories. And I wouldn't, uh, I think it would be remiss of me to recommend it to readers as a, uh, you know, a kind of page turner in that sense. But the... Um, uh, no, it's it's not a page turner, but it's the sort of thing that it's such a break from because so many books are following narrative structures that when you read something that doesn't give a crap about any of that and is like, I don't care what I'm doing and you can just enjoy it or not. It's kind of it's refreshing. It's like yeah, having a bath. No, 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 no absolutely. You know, and um, I mean, I, I, I picked out um, it's not a it's not a response to um, more pricks, but it's a. It's a reader's note um, from someone who was looking at the uh, the manuscript for the novel that parts of the, the collection comes from. So this is Edward Garnett um, for, for Jonathan Cape. He says, I wouldn't touch this with a barge pole. Beckett probably is a clever fellow, but here he has elaborated a slavish and rather incoherent imitation of Joyce, most eccentric in language and full of disgustingly affected passages. Also indecent, underlined. This school is damned. And you wouldn't sell the book even on its title. Chato was right to turn it down. Um, which I feel you could you could largely apply to more pricks and kicks. Um, but but that sense <laughs> yeah. of you know um, Beckett uh, having or the early Beckett having what Sean of Whalen um, talking about Flannery called a whiff of spilt Joyce. Um, I think I think it, it, again if we're coming back to the question why this might have been banned, the feeling that oh this is a kind of experimental writing that clearly wants to play with particularly sex often you know non-reproductive or you know in in various ways kind of non-heteronormative sex in a learned way just sort of set off people's like Joyce alarm <laughs> in a in a way that um I think kind of rebounded on on Beckett in in ways that certainly soured his relationship with Ireland I've read that he left Ireland partly because of censorship and that he felt he had to kind of get away from it. I mean, is that true? Is that Was that part of his motivation? I just kind of feel like he couldn't have stayed anyway if he was writing stuff <laughs> as mental as this. He had yeah, to I mean, it's, um, it's, it's definitely a factor. So Beckett, he, he definitively bricks with Ireland um, in, in, in late 1937, kind of 38. Where censorship comes into that is that 
about a month after leaving, he's called back to um, serve as a witness in a libel trial that his uncle-in-law is pursuing against Oliver Gogarty. Um, so I'm not sure if you've come across Gogarty before, but he, he's the model for Buck Mulligan and Ulysses. But Gogarty, uh, I mean, he was a poet throughout his life and career, but um, especially after Ulysses and especially after being depicted in what he felt was a very unfavorable light by Joyce, he sort of started writing his own prose, sort of romantic clay responses um, to Ulysses in some sense. So he publishes a book called um, As I Was Going Down Sackville Street, which features um, a very unpleasant anti-Semitic caricature of um, Beckett's uncle-in-law, Boss Sinclair, and his twin brother, Harry, in which he insinuates that their grandfather, who'd been at the center of a kind of quite prominent divorce trial in about 1906, had been a child molester and that they had kind of inherited this propensity. And this is all very closely bound up with their Jewishness in the way that Gogarty presents it. Beckett was called in to confirm as a kind of notionally independent outsider that he recognized the libels. So he says, you know, like based on this description, you would know that this is intended as a character of, of the Sinclair brothers. Now, what happens is that um, Gogarty's defense team sees on Beckett's literary credentials the fact that more pricks and kicks has been censored in 1934 like a couple of years prior to this trial and they set about undermining his character in a in a very sort of public way so initially they begin by asking him if he's um if he well they say you're a writer and beckett you know says yes um and they say what what have you written to, to kind of merit this claim and he says you know i've written poetry and um essays and and prose fiction and they seize on um, the fact that he's uh, written about Proust. So he's written, he published a, a short kind of um, critical monograph on Proust in 1931. The the barrister deliberately mispronounces Proust. So he says, ah, I've written about Marcel Proust. And Beckett, as he's, you know, as he's intended to by the barrister, corrects him and says in perfect, you know, perfect French pronunciation, a Proust, which already makes him sound A, like a prick and B, <laughs> like a, a kind of Parisian decadent. And then the barrister goes on to say, oh, well, you know, does um, does Marcel Proust not indulge in the psychology of sex? I mean, it's an in, it's it's a really interesting formulation. What I think what's what's clever about it from a kind of from the barrister's perspective is obviously if you don't know what the psychology of sex is, indulge in the psychology of sex just sounds dirty. But if you do know what it is, it's you're you know <laughs> you're it again sounds like Beckett writes about non-normative desire, right? So we're back to kind of Havelock Ellis. From there, kind of changing. Well, Be- Beckett then says, "I wouldn't know anything about that." Changing tack, they then bring up, you know, how long was it before your book was banned? He says, oh, six months." Do you know why it was banned? And Beckett says they doesn't. But then what what happens is the defense lawyer then reads a, a passage from a wet night as kind of evident, you know, to to say to characterize the book. The passage that he goes for comes from the story we've just been discussing, um, in which. The Polar Bear, which is a kind of um, Beckett's version of his old French teacher um, from Trinity, Thomas Rudmose Brown, um, who's having an argument on a bus with a Jesuit. The the Polar Bear says the following. The Lebensborn, he was saying, for he never used the English word when the foreign pleased him better, of the Galilean, i.e. Christ, is the tragicomedy of the solipsism that will not capitulate. The humilities and retro maze and quaffs of reverence are on a par with the hey presto's arrogance and egoism. He is the first great self-contained playboy. The cryptic abasement before the woman taken red-handed is as great a piece of megalomaniacal impertinence as his interference in the affairs of his boyfriend, Lazarus. 
He opens the series of slick suicides as opposed to the series Empedoclean variety. He has to answer for the wretched Nemo and his co-rates bleeding in paroxysms of DP on an unimpressed public. Um, and then he hawks up the gob of mucus. His boyfriend, Lazarus. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's not. It's, I was going to say it's not even that wow. friendly. Bill. Yeah, I mean the defense. <laughs> the defense lawyer says I would characterize this as an obscene and blasphemous passage. Would you? And Beckett doesn't really have anywhere to go. <laughs> <laughs> he's like no of course i was not trying yeah, at I, all I was i had no, no. Oh, no, uh, um <laughs> i mean beyond the kind of you know his boyfriend lazarus um and all of the kind of you know implied punning i'm raising people up <laughs> um there's uh you know you've got the kind of the, the self-contained playboy thing right so sort of reference to the playboy of the western world but a self-contained playboy is basically someone who instead of like you know directing their sexual energies outward is just consistently wanking um <laughs> Yeah, I can see that that didn't go down well in the court, I would suspect. I think his uh, status as character witness was Well, it shot was, and it was that. also it, that it, it was shot not only in the courtroom, but this this trial was covered quite widely in the Irish Times. So, this echoed beyond um uh, you know, beyond just the the kind of um the confines of the courtroom itself. Um so there's a yeah, there's two Two articles, um, both of which feature Beckett fairly prominently, one of which just gives a, a sort of account of what I um, j- just read there. Um, and then the the follow up article um, reports on the kind of concluding statements of Gogarty's lawyer, uh, who refers to Beckett as a bawd and a blasphemer. And he's from Paris, too, the filthy muckraker. And he knows I how mean... to pronounce Bruce's name. Which again tied into the anti Semitism as well, because like Proust's a, a Jewish author and. Um, Beckett's also asked if he's um, an atheist, Christian or Jew. He declines all three labels. But yeah, so basically in the eyes of the court, Beckett is this Parisian blow-in who writes about this morally suspect, sexually suspect Jewish author, refuses to identify his religion. It's about as as public a kind of humiliation um, as, as can be imagined. And like I say, that's pretty much the last time that Beckett consistently sets foot in Ireland. He, he departs shortly thereafter. And, um, but this really, it seems to be a fairly sort of definitive death knell for his, uh, his relationship with Ireland. When- a lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend, but what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It was released in 1952 because it was appealed. Did he react in any way or was he so far beyond at that point? Had he just changed... Well, the irony of it being, uh, you know, notionally sort of released from censorship jail is that um, no copies of it existed to be released. So it, uh, <laughs> unfortunately, it had been commissioned um, in, a, in a print run of 1500 copies by I think about four years after release. Um, they'd only succeeded in selling 500 of those and the remaining thousand were pulped in 1938. So um which ironically ultimately meant that it was one of the most valuable of Beckett's books. You know, if, if you had a copy of the first edition, that, you know, was doubly sort of valuable because of its scarcity and because it's Beckett. So, yeah, the irony is that as much as it was notionally available to the reading public, it wasn't until it was um, it was reissued in 1970 after he'd won the uh, Nobel Prize. Um, and he was finally strong armed into allowing it to be reissued. He 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 felt it was didn't represent his writing at its, at its best. It was a, a form of juvenilia, and he kind of was happy to see see the back of it. As, as far as Beckett was concerned, I doubt the news kind of crossed his path, but even if it had, it wouldn't have meant anything. Because <laughs> nobody could buy the book. The copy that I got from the library, so it's from... It's a review copy, actually, which is kind of funny. I don't know how a review copy ended up in the library. From 1973. Right. Is that the Calder edition? Yeah, it's Calder. Right, yeah, it's yeah. Calder. Yeah. Actually, funnily enough, there's a sticker <laughs> inside and it says Band ah! Book Exhibition, <laughs> Cork City Libraries 2015. <laughs> they only have one <laughs> copy in the library. Probably not widely read. But you mentioned his work that was published much later, First Love. You said that was sort of part of his reaction to censorship. Yeah, so, um, I mean, again, it, it's a text with a slightly complicated composition history um, and, and publication history. So he writes it circa 1947. It's one of the first works that he writes um, completely in French. But yeah, in terms of its kind of response to the Censorship Act, it essentially feels like a story that's been written specifically on an, in an almost kind of checklist manner to irritate the Irish censor. So um, I, I talk about it in the, in the PhD and um, if I may be permitted the indulgence of quoting myself just just for ease, the sake of ease because it, 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 it's, uh, you know, I, I tried to kind of compose a bullet point list of all the things it does. Um, so... Um, Brilliant. Following his father's death, Beckett's narrator finds himself evicted from his familial home during a period of troubled defecation. His description of his fecal issues grows increasingly detailed and ultimately blasphemous. At such times, I gazed duly at the, uh, I gazed dully at the almanac hanging from a nail before my eyes, with its chromo of a bearded stripling in the midst of sheep. Jesus, no doubt. Parted the cheeks with both hands and strained, heave ho, heave ho, the motions of one tugging at the oar. 
The physical and syntactic proximity in which Beckett places Jesus to the narrator's heaving attempts at evacuation form part of a range of narratorial shock tactics that serve as provocations to censorship throughout the text. Um, when the narrator seeks refuge in a cow shed after attempting to break off his relationship with Lulu, um, a sex worker um, who he's met earlier on a bench um, and he's given him a hand job, um, he traces her name in the dry and hollow cow claps that surround him. Uh, this act of fecal inscription prompts a reflection on his homeland, which the narrator presents as manured with history's ancient feces dropped in steaming piles to be sought after, stuffed and carried in procession by the nation's patriots. I loved that line so much. <laughs> it's basically his response to like 1916 and the Revolutionary, the, the Revolutionary War. <laughs> um, so it's, it's as gleefully kind of irreverent as possible. As the short summary deliberately emphasizes, Premier Amour, uh, as it's known in French, first love, seems to take the censorship of publications act as a schematic for its content containing as it does obscenity blasphemy sex work references to contraception vocal advocacy of abortion and a cloacal obsession fit to rival joyce at his most eye-watering <laughs> so what you're saying is he had his censorship bingo card out and he was like yeah i am gonna go Almost for every single like point box. for point now obviously apart from just the like gleeful filth of it all yeah, that there is a, a a political angle to to this. It is done to to a purpose. It's not simply a sort of you know exercise in, in exuberant um, shock tactics. And and the crux of it, as as you may have even picked up, I think from from the sort of praise I, I gave there, uh, centers on questions of contraception and particularly abortion um, and the regulation of fertility and the the kind of toxic relationship that enjoys um, with questions of eugenics. And who should be allowed to to reproduce? It's a fun story. I've made. I've, I've probably made it sound much darker and less pleasant there. <laughs> yeah, because when I because you know people say the word Beckettian, so I thought I better look it up. <laughs> and you know it says bleak and existential. And I said like, I don't I don't get it. This this book and First Love aren't aren't particularly bleak. Actually, I thought they were quite fun. So I was a bit surprised. So it must not, must only refer to some of his works then. Beckett is an author who never gives you, you know, reassuring certainties or traditional forms of reassurance. But that does not mean that it's kind of a work evacuated of, of hope or, or comfort. And the, you know, the, his depend his tendency to depict um you know indigent forms of life people who are who have been excluded or forgotten or left behind or uh, you know often um especially through forms of maybe physical impairment um who are are somehow on the periphery of um you know kind of quote unquote culture or society that is um what what Beckett offers and you know e- even if more pricks and cakes isn't as sort of far along in that process of stripping back maybe some of the you know the kind of real world frame of reference from that. There is something about the way that Blackwa muddles along um, <laughs> that, you know, does chime with that. Um, That's what makes it, I think, so refreshing to read, you know, is its disavowal of the happy ending in mm. all senses, you know, all the different levels through the text and all the way up to morality and... I mean, for me, that's why it's so much fun, because he he doesn't give a shit, you know. Despite the, the profusion of shit. In the world. Despite the profusion of shit. I mean, yeah, another laugh out loud moment was the uh, the, the turd in the middle of the ling when they get to mm. the top of the hill, you know, when they're on their suicide pact. I don't know why, but that made me laugh out loud. One of the most weird recurring tropes in More Pricks and Kicks is that um, Blackwell 
I think at least about twice, maybe three or four times, consistently, every time we're introduced to him in the stories in the middle of that collection, he's emerging from a public toilet. He's always at a urinal. He's always, you know that, you know the the um, public toilet that used to be under the statue of Tommy Moore of Thomas Moore um, near near TCD. That a lot, a weird, a weirdly large number of Dublin literary people refer to that urinal. It also crops up in Flannery. But anyway, Blackwell is always emerging out of there. Um, there's also um, he he's he talk, Beckett describes him at one point emerging from the hot bowels of the earth. So Blackwell is like a fresh turd. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I didn't notice much sex, but there was a lot of yeah. shit, you know, like shit is the predominant kind of, if you were to say to me, what was the indecent part? Like, I would say that was the only part that struck me. Beckett is very, is consistently interested in um, things that have been sort of abjected, right? Things that have been expelled, be that from the body or be that from culture or, you know, kind of things that have been consigned to a notional periphery. Um a collection of short prose is called Disjecta, and then he talks about it, which is um, the kind of like lopped off parts of a text. So he's, he's very interested in that which is left behind or extruded. And obviously, shit is the ultimate kind of version of that. It's, you know, it, it's both part <laughs> of us, but not us kind of in the same moment. And I thought it was great. I honestly, I was kind of dreading reading Beckett because I never had and never did anything in college on Beckett, funnily enough. And so I was kind of like, oh God, he's going to be really grim and it's going to be really odd and I won't understand a single thing. And I actually, I I will say I was very pleasantly surprised and I would recommend trying to read Beckett. I don't know if you would recommend that these were the best. I think First Love was more I, I would say, yeah, in terms of um, on-ramps for Beckett's writing, I wouldn't start with more pricks and kicks because, yeah, you know, it's, only only a mother could love it it's it's hard (laughs) Um, no it's you know it's it's an odd book it came together very oddly um at an odd time in his life and it's you know I, i think some of its interest is maybe more about seeing where beckett beckett's work develops or thinking about his kind of relationship to irish culture and politics in that historical moment but yeah i think first love is you know it's it's short it's as as we've seen, sort of eye-watering in places, and while reading the work of Samuel Beckett as like a you know self-help book or something might be might lead to interesting results. I, you know, <laughs> yeah, no, not good. <laughs> I, well, you you find yourself banged up pretty quick, but um, but you know I, they, they are they're you know they're funny and wise and enriching texts and yeah. So you know I, I'm I'm very glad that you enjoyed your your first foray into Beckett and I, uh, I I hope it only only leads on from here <laughs> we just do the censorship bingo so I mean if you think of something that I've missed shout out so is this for um is this for more pricks specifically because I was gonna say I feel like with with first love we'd have done every, almost everything yeah but it wasn't actually well, banned no, yeah. so yeah I see by the time he got round to writing that the censorship board were now too embarrassed to ban people like him it's only because he's Beckett that he's untouchable at that yeah, point. Yeah, no, as I say, it, it's 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 not a coincidence that was um, first published, you know, properly in in the aftermath of him getting the Nobel Prize. <laughs> that that'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're not going to be banning the Nobel Prize winner at that point. They'd be mortified. I mean, they've already changed the law because they were embarrassed. Let's see just how many squares of censorship bingo more pricks than kicks ticks off. So, firstly breasts. I actually said 
no initially, but then I thought maybe yes. They're not they're not bared, but we do have the the concave breast. They're they're innies rather than outies, but we do have breasts. <laughs> <laughs> that would that would do for the Irish censor. Bestiality? I don't think so. Did I? No. Yeah, not not that I can not direct. No. <laughs> Sex work. I mean, I thought so. I I did think that the Alba was possibly your man's. Belacqua's uh, latest squeeze. I, I, I don't know that the Alba's a sex worker, but yeah, certainly um, at that party we're told that um, uh, more than a few um, sex workers are present. Also, as as we talked about the the Frika, her her name is a highfalutin pun on a reference to sex work. So definitely, it's it's flirted with. <laughs> okay, uh, racism. I didn't think there was really anything worth talking about in racial politics. No, I mean, the nearest you come are there are a few Jewish characters at the um, uh, at that party at the Freakas, but they are handled with relative respect and deference. And as as we sort of discussed earlier, you know, um, Beckett had good familial reasons to um, abhor anti-Semitism. Uh, thankfully, no. Good. No. Uh, no drugs, I didn't think so. Nah, a hell of a lot of booze. As a lot of booze, but unfortunately there's so much booze in so many books that <laughs> you just, if I put that on the bingo card, they'd all get a score. Politics? I didn't think there was any... Ex- yes and no. I mean, back, like, uh, Blackwa, Blackwa vomits all over a guard and, like, th- there are... It's clear that it's not a novel that's kind of in or a, a short story collection that's in love with the institutional sort of architecture of the free state. But it's you, you never get a kind of, you know, out and out screed against Cosgrave or something, you know, double era. So, yeah, it's it's there's definitely a politics to be unearthed, but it's um, not one that, you know, the, the censor would have necessarily been equipped to even register. <laughs> I think this defeated them anyway. I don't think they read much of it before. I honestly they think like... they got to the title page and that was that. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine them maybe going into like, you know, page three or four and be like, oh my God, what is this? It's crazy shit. Yeah. Let's just, let's just ban this weird crap. Swearing. I mean, I couldn't pinpoint any foul language, but it kind of felt sweary. It, it felt like they were swearing. All the language feels charged with usually like erotic or fecal kind of double meaning. So I think it, it's, I think you're right that it creates the impression of often having said more than it has. When I put it down, I was like, I felt like that was all full of foul language, but it isn't. Like, <laughs> I feel dirty, but I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I need a shower, but I can't work out why. <laughs> So the next one, infidelity. Well, no, I don't think so. No, nobody. The, marriage isn't really part of the the story. There's cer- there's certainly extramarital sex going on. So like um, it, you know, on um, in that story, Fingal, when he talks about being a sad animal, that's meant to be a kind of oblique reference to um, La Petite Mort. Like the, the so they they there's a fair bit of extramarital outdoor sex, and then he absconds on a bike. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean stealing a bike like ditching someone on a date because you saw a nice bike and you just stole it 
it's a bit young offenders actually and again a, a weird through line in irish modernist writing flannery and you know third policeman's written only a few years after this and again characters sexually obsessed with bicycles people in irish fiction really fucking love bikes <laughs> i'm worried now because i really like i really like cycling so i'm very worried <laughs> What is this saying about me? Well, Flannabrian would suggest that you need to be careful that your your atoms are not being exchanged with those of bike. And so, yeah, what percentage of you is you and what percentage of you is bike? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a danger. <laughs> okay, the next one. Crime. They were going to commit suicide, mm. which is a crime, until 1993 in Ireland. And... They did have sex outdoors, so like that's sure to be illegal if anyone catches you at it. Yeah, there's. Uh, I think also like she strips off on the way up to that that hilltop. Um, as I say, I can't imagine. I, well, Blackwood gets away with it, but I think voiding your stomach on um, a representative of the law is probably also not advisable. Um. Yes. <laughs> um, so the next box is genitalia. Well, I didn't think there were any explicit references, but... Well, you see, this is where you need to have your multilingual dictionary to hand, because... <laughs> yeah, um, that's what I was missing. This is... Yeah, well, no, I mean, it's 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 insufferable. I'm not... <laughs> but again, in, in, a, in a wet night, we get um, things like the uh, the following. We get a, a snatch from um, a, a Jota, which is a, a traditional Spanish um, folk song, I'll, I'm not even going to do the Spanish pronunciation because I'll, I'll, I'll butcher it. Um, but it translates roughly as "Don't fuck me on the ground as if I were a bitch, because with those massive balls, you'll fill my cunt with earth." Um, <laughs> uh, Damn it! Why was it in Spanish? <laughs> well, I think precisely to in some vain hope of getting it out into the uh, into the world. Um, I mean, uh, also you know the, the poem in that chapter uh, or in that short story, "Calvary by Night." We we get a lot of um, fairly heavy allusion to genitals, so uh, there's a, a a kind of aspirant um, Gaelic poet who gives us the water, the waste of water, which is pretty obviously piss. Um, so we've got a kind of literal piss take going on. So we've got some some very learned oblique references to um, to junk. <laughs> So what you're saying is is we have to take the genitalia box. Then. Yeah. Um, so the next one is abortion, but I don't think there was any, was there? No, I mean, there's, like, fertility is treated very glibly and with a kind of abhorrence in the, the collection, but I don't think anyone explicitly um, terminates a pregnancy or, or is, is held to have done so. Okay, the next one, orgies. I didn't think so, but maybe there was something going on in the Casa Fricka that it was more than just a, a, a lot of chatting. No, I, I don't think anything anything quite as pronounced as an orgy. But uh... Sexual assault. I didn't think so. No. No. The next one, extramarital pregnancy. No, but like you say, there is extramarital sex. Yeah, there's a fair, there's a fair, amount, of, um, fair amount of shagging, albeit very kind of oblique, but... Um... I think black with sperm would be too lazy to <laughs> to manage anything. So <laughs> I'm surprised he bothered at all, really, because he doesn't want to talk to anyone or be with anyone in any way, <laughs> as little as possible. <laughs> Masturbation. Well, 
Yes, I suppose. Yeah, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of references to 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 onanism and often to kind of writing um, as a, as a form of of self love. So uh, that uh, yeah, our, our our Irish poet who who gives us that um, you know poem poem about the the waste water is in a regular lather of volition, bringing it off. Um. Okay, we'll take that yeah. one then. <laughs> Masturbation, yes. Sex toys, no. Really? Was there sex toys somewhere hidden in no, Italian there's or lot, French? There's, um, there's references to flagellation. So it's the, 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 the accoutrement of kink are kind of obliquely present. One of the, uh, the intertexts Beckett used in um, you know, kind of composing the whole thing was uh, Reverend William M. Cooper's Flagellation and the Flagellants, A History of the Rod from 1869, <laughs> which um, is... <laughs> It's bizarre. It's it's simultaneously. I mean, it, it um, a lot of versions of it, it. It wound up in a lot of university libraries in their kind of psychology section, which is often what happened to you know kind of uh, slightly unplaceable obscene works. But it's um, it's a strange mix of the very you know the kind of learned and notionally sort of scientific um, or pseudoscientific, and the just like straightforwardly filthy. So it's it's just like a compendium of like famous people who were into whipping. Were being whipped in history and like uh, or you know like convents where this was practiced and just trying to kind of offer a history of like why are people so into birching what's what's the crack with that what's... so the next one on the list is feminism well i would say no to that no i mean unfortunately there's just some quite willful misogyny yeah um, I think it, uh, yeah, it's something I didn't probably emphasize as much as I should is, yeah, the, the, the early Beckett, you know, I mean, Beckett goes on to become arguably one of the, the, the great sort of um, writers of parts for women, you know, his, his kind of um, career long collaboration with Billy Whitelaw particularly yielded some, you know, inc- incredible roles for, for, for women. But, uh, but yeah, early, early Beckett, well, you know, par- participates in a, a pretty widespread and quite glib modernist misogyny where, a lot of women in this book wind up getting thrown quite violently under the bus. <laughs> so the next one, divorce. I would say no. I don't think there was divorce because it was no marriage much. Yeah, yeah, nothing to to have been dissolved or annulled. Contraception. No, I don't think so. No, not certainly not being like explicitly or visibly sort of practiced. No, no, no references to rubber goods or anything. <laughs> so menstruation. I don't think so. No. Not nah. even in some weird, <laughs> elusive fashion that you need a book to find out. Blasphemy. Well, I mean, the whole thing just feels absolutely steeped in blasphemy and anti-religion and satirical attitudes. Jesus and his boyfriend, Lazarus. <laughs> actually, that sounds like something people would actually say, like Jesus and his boyfriend, Lazarus. <laughs> the- the way they say Jesus, Mary and Joseph. Jesus, Mary and Joseph. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel, I feel like we've minted a new plausible irish exclamation <laughs> jesus and his boyfriend lazarus i mean I, I i ship jesus and lazarus i i'm I'm here for i mean he loses his shit when he finds out lazarus is dead he, he is he, he cracks out the top grade jesus magic to, to yeah, he, yeah he does doesn't he yeah well okay yeah totally blasphemous i like you say even the title is blasphemous gleefully yeah yeah <laughs> Oral sex. Was there oral sex in it? I would struggle to place it, but I... Oh, actually, no. Sorry, I'm, to- I'm, I'm talking... It's that Spanish song as well. Oh, the Spanish the, song. Uh, yes. Yeah, that, that Spanish song is like... It begins with an invocation to um, the, 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 the commission of fellatio. So. <laughs> okay, so we can take that one too. 
graphic violence. I didn't think there was anything much violence in it. Nah, I mean, your one getting getting hit by the the car was just funny. Lucy oh, getting yeah, yeah, hit yeah. by the car that was just played for laughs. So the final one, queer content. Yes or no? What would you say? There certainly is in the presentation of the Freaker. It's just certainly not celebratorily. You know, it's um, it's a fairly pathologized depiction. Um, or you know, I, I think we're very much meant to. We're being primed to read her as an ambiguously um, gendered and sexed person, but the, the narrator has such venom for that character that it, I, I wouldn't be turning to um, the early Beckett for a positive queer representation, shall we say. <laughs> so should we take that box or not? Yes or no? You make the call. I mean, I, well, yeah, 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 it is there. It's there. Okay. I just hope it doesn't lead anyone to read it for that. <laughs> no, it would not be a plan. Well, is that, is that eight out of 25? That's eight out of 25, which actually is not bad. Yeah, it's, as we've established, it's, you know, it's it's often oblique and, you know, hidden under sort of learned and inaccessible <laughs> inaccessibility. But, uh, but yeah, there's a fair, fair amount of filth all there. Yeah, I mean, you have to work for it. And once you have a, a reference book and a lot of time in your hands, you can figure out <laughs> all of the high cast smut. Well, that was great. Thank you so much, Lloyd. You really, you know, opened my eyes to the uh, filth and fun of Beckett. My my very great pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. It's, uh, it's yeah, it's, it's lovely to be able to talk in in such uh, gleeful detail about such, <laughs> such indecent things. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And that's it for season two of Censored. It's been a wild ride. Thanks for listening to me read out the filth in banned books. My guests have been generous, funny and thoughtful, and I love them all. Because editing their wonderful contributions breaks my heart, I'm starting a Patreon to share the supercharged, full-length versions of our conversations. My chat with Dr. Lloyd Maeve Houston will be the first one available. Then you can hear about Beckett and Nazis, eugenics and wankers desks. Keep an eye on Twitter at CensoredPod for updates. I've discovered some surprising things this season. Who knew Molly Keane wrote about BDSM and abortion? But the biggest shock to me was that the rudest book was the one I most hated. J.P. Dunleavy's The Ginger Man was really filthy. So rude that there wasn't time to read all the bad bits out. So I've made a bonus episode on Mary, who drags Sebastian Dangerfield to her coal shed and has her wicked way with him. In the bonus episode, I'll explain why I love Mary almost as much as I despise Dangerfield. Then I'm taking a short break to catch up on my reading. I could say I'm planning to read clean, wholesome literature, but you'd know I was lying. If you want to read some filthy books... Check out the book list for Season 3 online on censored.ie. From a legendary sex manual to teenage angst, there's lots to choose from. Some of the smut is so shocking you might find yourself saying, Jesus and his boyfriend Lazarus.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.